Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, it's Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Marisa Lagos. And on today's show, Sabrina Cervantes was the youngest member of the state assembly when she was elected at age 29 to represent the Inland Empire. Cervantes chairs the Latino Legislative Caucus, and she's also raising triplets with her wife back home. We've got a lot to talk with her about, including how she knocked off a Republican incumbent in a GOP-leaning district and held on to the seat. But first, Guy, and we do want to talk with the Assemblywoman about this as well, but uh, Governor Newsom this week uh, took something of a victory lap, uh, signing a bill that had been much anticipated. It started off as a tax, got kind of uh, reduced down to a penalty, and now it's going to be giving more uh, transparency and more empowered to the regulators to help bring some a little bit of uh, light, perhaps, to how gas prices are set in the state. Yeah, I mean, I think at a certain point, a victory lap had to be taken, right? This was a special session that Newsom previewed as part of his re-election campaign. Um, and I think, look, and, and conversations we've had with legislators kind of behind the scenes, a big driving force of this by the end was you got to get something done, right? It's And I'll be interested to hear the assembly members' thoughts on this, but it's like you swim out to the middle of the lake in this special session, you got to find some way to the end. And in the end, I think the legislature got a really good deal out of this, right? This is something that is going to be put to the Energy Commission. They're going to be the ones to set the potential profit ceiling. They're going to be the ones to determine penalties. You have the state auditor who's going to come back and figure out, is this programmer working or not? The legislature gets to sit back, and if there is money coming in from the from the windfall, they get to disperse it. Yeah, exactly. And Newsom was pretty clear that this is not something that's going to affect gas prices uh, today, tomorrow, or even this year necessarily. Uh, but it, you know, the other thing is, you know, they don't have to worry about being accused of raising taxes. You know, just leave that to the regulators. Right. Uh, the Republican Party, of course, and some members are trying to spin it that this is going to lead to higher prices at the pump. Uh, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, but you know, and but you know, your reference a special session. There have been other special sessions where there's been that swim out to the middle of the lake and then came back to the lake with no fish, no nothing. <laughs> right. So this is actually, uh, you know, I think this is maybe the way the process is supposed to work. Uh, obviously, the tax idea was not well received. Uh, it was floated before the election last year and, you know, gas prices were above six bucks a gallon. Um, and I think this is something the legislature, like you said, feels more comfortable with and in the end may actually make a bigger difference. Yeah. And I don't really understand the problem process arguments here, right? This is not something that was put together in one week. This was something that had been discussed for months. There was a long informational hearings in the utilities uh, committee just 
hearing from experts, many of whom came back and said, look, the way that Newsom originally approached this might not be the best way to do it. And then, you you know, saw revisions from then. I do think you find the oil industry in California at a really interesting space coming out of this. We know they punch above their weight in a very blue state. You can look at the amount of lobbying money that was spent last session. No one spent more. You can look at the record of their super PACs in the midterm elections. They did pretty well. And even a bill like this where, yes, it did ultimately get changed a lot towards the finish line. But on this, on the same token, things have changed in from past decades, even from past years, from 2015, when they handed Jerry Brown a huge defeat when he was trying to limit, uh, you know, cut petroleum use in the state. And I think you look at the, the record Newsom put together towards the end of last session, the environmental bills he passed, the fact that only one Democrat voted no on this bill in the assembly, given all the moderate members there. Yeah, and including, you know, Democrats that the oil industry had given money to help them get elected. You know, some of those uh, either voted for it or just, you know, didn't vote against it. Um, You know, one thing, and you and I were like slacking about this yesterday, over slack, uh, is that the governor could not help himself. You know, he had this uh, uh, press conference in the the rotunda to sign the bill, and he uh, made reference to a certain governor in a certain state, obviously referring to Ron DeSantis, who, you know, basically, as he put it, brought Mickey Mouse to his knees when he took on Disney over LGBT rights uh, in that state and said, we brought big oil to its knees. Uh, eh, maybe a little bit of hyperbole. And also just so unreal. I mean, this literally had nothing to do with anything DeSantis had been pursuing. Yes, Wispa had run some ads in Florida against, you know, Newsom. But it, it just seemed like going out of his way to make that connection to DeSantis. You know, it, not did make, it, it, it did make me kind of think, like, wouldn't it be nice to have a woman governor one of these days? <laughs> just because there's like this trash talking that he does, not just with DeSantis and, you know, with uh, with Abbott in Texas. And I just I don't know. I just feel like it's a different style. I mean, it mm. works for him, I guess. Uh, but it's not the kind of thing you see women governors or senators doing very much. It just made me think about that. Interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, we uh, before we talk to uh, our guests, before we take a break, I do want to briefly touch on this vote that happened this week in Shasta County. Uh, the Board of Supervisors there are voting to move ahead with a plan to hand count ballots. It would be the only county in California to do that. Why does this matter? I think this is the manifestation of election conspiracies coming home in California. Absolutely. I mean, sort of what they what they did was sever ties with Dominion, which is, uh, you know, used in 40 of the 58 counties here in California. They make voting machines, which have been the target of conspiracy theories and the big lie. Uh, in fact, they're suing Fox News for defamation, a huge, I think it's a $1.6 billion lawsuit. And so, yeah, Shasta County becomes the very first county in the country to uh, get rid of the Dominion machines. The question is, what are they going to replace them with? And so, as you said, they want to go to a total hand count, which requires a lot of work. And, you know, you talk about transparency and having faith in the integrity of the election. There's a lot of questions about that. How do you tabulate them? How do you even print the ballots if you don't have machines? And how do you count them in a way that people are going to believe? Can you use an Excel spreadsheet? You know, and then disabled voters also need some kind of equipment. They can't fill, you know, if if they're blind or whatever. So there's a lot of questions. There could well be lawsuits uh, aimed at Shasta County over this decision. But, you know, it is something clearly that conservatives are cheering in a county that is a very conservative county, went by by 65 percent to Trump last time. Yeah, it will be interesting to see the Secretary of State, Shirley Weber's, any response she has to this, and then litigation. I mean, yeah, you said it. Let the lawsuits fly. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be joined by Riverside Assemblywoman Sabrina Cervantes. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here this week with Guy Marzarati, and we are super excited to have with us today a state lawmaker from the Inland Empire, one of the most purple and competitive parts of California. And at age 29, Sabrina Cervantes defeated a Republican incumbent there to win an assembly seat in Riverside County. She chairs the Latino Legislative Caucus, and now she's running for a promotion of sorts to the state Senate. Sabrina Cervantes, welcome to Political Breakdown. Good to have you. Pleasure to be with you all. Well, of course, we love on this show to talk about guest biographies. But before we do that, we do want to get your take on the special session and the bill that we talked about at the top of the show. Um, You're kind of a centrist Democrat, as Democrats go in Sacramento. How did you get to yes on this bill? How hard was it for you to support it? Well, at the end of the day, we were concerned about how much people were paying at the pump. We've been uh, dealing with this and constituents have been asking questions for over a year. And so there were a lot of questions when we knew that the price of crude oil barrels were down. Uh, And so we had to really take a look at what we can do as a legislature, uh, working with the administration, the governor uh, on ways to address this. And so we stood united to protect consumers from price gouging at the pump. Uh, This week, we took a bold step, uh, strong action to protect Californians from price gouging. Uh, But we we did a lot of work uh, in both houses to get to this point. And at the end of the day, it's making sure that no Californian is being taken advantage of. What do you make of critiques? And we've heard this a lot from your Republican colleagues that the legislature is basically handing over control over this issue of price gouging to the quote unquote bureaucracy. It's basically that the you know administration that's ultimately going to have to make these decisions. So, so the Energy Commission will determine, uh, sure, the penalties. Uh, at the end of the day, we felt this was uh, the strongest action we can take. Uh, there were a lot of different amendments and solutions being put forth uh, by various groups and stakeholders 
uh, and we had a strong assembly working group uh, working with the Senate counter counterparts and the administration uh, to get to a place where we could get the majority of both houses to be on board. Uh, and so it, it took a lot to get to this point. Some say that it took us too long, right? Um, and others say that we acted too quickly. Uh, so this is this is politics and uh, policies that occur all the time in Sacramento. And as a representative, I'm doing the best that I can uh, to protect consumers at the end of the day. All right. Well, we want to talk about your bio. You have a very interesting life. You were born, I think, in 1987 in the eastern part of the Coachella Valley in Riverside County. Uh, which some may know, I guess, for the uh, Coachella Music Festival. Uh, but what was it like for you growing up there? Well, my family settled in the Coachella Valley in 1920 uh, and purchased our family ranch that is still today our family ranch, the ranch that I grew up on. I'm a lifelong resident of Riverside County. Uh, and at an early age, I used to work side by side with my father and my grandfather replenishing the well, uh, which is the second oldest well in the Coachella Valley. Uh, we would use that well water to uh, you know, get water into our homes, uh, to irrigate the property. Uh, and even as a as a young girl, we used to uh, pick oranges from our orange trees. I'm the eldest of four girls. And so we would uh, climb the trees, pick the oranges that were ready and they were ripe, bag them, and then turn around and sell them in our front yard uh, right there on the street. And so I still remember, you know, that citrus aroma uh, coming from the beautiful trees uh, very strong set, but that is some of my fondest memories uh, growing up. And you are not the first Cervantes to get into politics. Your dad, Greg, was the mayor of the city of Coachella. What was that like growing up? I mean, how did yeah. he get into politics, catch the, the political bug? Well, my father uh, was a public servant. I remember uh, the age of six years old, being with my father at community events, uh, doing the parades, knocking on doors, talking to constituents. Uh, he served as mayor of the city of Coachella in 1990 to 94. And so I was between the ages of three and seven at the time. Uh, he actually gave the first key to the city to Cesar Chavez, which is an icon, a mm. civil rights icon. Um, you know, people think of Cesar Chavez as Delano and uh, the important work uh, that he did there. But when I think about Cesar Chavez, I think about Coachella. Uh, there, there is uh, no no stronger civil rights leader uh, than Cesar Chavez uh, in the city of Coachella because he came out there during the great boycott movement uh, where my family had direct experience. We actually had grapes on our family ranch at the time where we we um we stood alongside my family stood alongside him um and they they marched and they protested uh, for better conditions for all farm workers uh and so really that's what from my father's uh you know experience in public service to my family serving in world war ii uh, storming the beaches of normandy uh all those collective experiences really propelled me to look at public service at an early age. Uh, and that really my upbringing has a lot to do with it and why I decided to run for office. Yeah, well, uh, no, it's not just 20, you, too, your 2016. sister. Yeah, your that sister is also is on the Riverside City Council. Uh, and I'm curious, like, what were dinner conversations like at home with your 
parents? I mean, were you, did you talk about politics? I mean, how did you catch the bug? So my mother immigrated here from Mexico at the age of nine. Uh, and so having our experiences, our family experiences, and having these discussions at the dinner table were so important. It was actually a part of our upbringing. Uh, like I said, I'm the eldest of, of four girls, and uh, my sister uh, is the current mayor pro tem in the city of Riverside. So yes, she also pursued a path in public service. Uh, and it's it's beautiful to be able to be of service to our communities in this way. Uh, my parents would always uh, bring up the importance of fighting and raising the voices of our communities that are the most marginalized, uh, making sure that we weren't leaving anyone out of the conversation, uh, that when people were afraid to speak up, that it was our duty to do what was right and stand up for them. Uh, but that having an education was a foundation of that, uh, that we needed to have an education to pursue um, our degrees uh, and, and then come back and serve our communities. So given all that, were you just unbeatable in student government? <laughs> you know, I, at an early age, I never saw myself in government and running for office. So I always was that quiet child who just focused on my athletics and focused on my uh, academics and just wanted to stay the course, didn't want it, you know, didn't want to be in the limelight. Uh, in fact, I was quite happy uh, being the legislative aide to members and, and just doing the work behind the scenes and never saw myself really stepping up and running for office uh, until it got to the point where I knew it, it was just that feeling uh, that propelled me uh, in 2015 when I decided to make the jump uh, from staffer to candidate. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer, here with Guy Marzarati, and we're talking with Sabrina Cervantes. She represents a chunk of Riverside County and a little bit of San Bernardino in the State Assembly. She also chairs the Latino Legislative Caucus up there in Sacramento. And Assemblywoman, you're one of about a dozen members of the LGBT Caucus in Sacramento, and I'm, I'm wondering what was coming out like for you? Did, did that happen in college? Did it happen in high school? Did, you know, how did it come about? It's different for everybody. So we, we do have the largest LGBTQ caucus in the nation with 13 members, historic 13 members this year. Uh, but I actually didn't come out until my late 20s. Uh, I started kind of that transition in my early 20s with my sister, uh, Clarissa, who is also openly LGBTQ. Uh, she was my my first confidant um, and someone that uh, I I felt uh, that I could be my authentic self around. Uh, and it was challenging being growing up Catholic, a Latino household. Uh, it, it's definitely a shift. Uh, and it took some time uh, for our families to to be accepting uh, of this. But this, is, again, was this is a much different time than we are today where uh, you see the acceptance, uh, although we still have a lot of barriers in our LGBTQ plus community, especially with our trans uh, siblings who, who face so many more barriers uh, and that we have to acknowledge and we fight for uh, on behalf of our communities every day here in Sacramento. Uh, but really, you know, I, I ran in a district that predominantly at the time was a very purple district uh, where I was counted out by Democrats and Republicans uh, because I didn't reflect 
the district that I was there's no way that a a Latina, a queer Latina could get elected to the state legislature. And 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 we did the work organizing on the ground, uh, took a look at a lot of the hard issues uh, and and really were able to win over the voters by showing up authentically. Um, and that was a beautiful part that I didn't have to pretend to be anyone else. I showed up, uh, you know, who with who I was in every room and every space and, and quickly realized as well that these spaces weren't meant for people who look like me. Uh, and, and that is still the same today. Uh, now that I am in an office, we are still pushing the needle and making sure that we're leading uh, with diversity, equity and inclusion in mind. So you won that race in 2016 and it was notable because you became the 54th vote Democratic vote in the state assembly, giving the party a supermajority, the ability to pass taxes. I mean, how did that affect how you approach the job as, as you said, someone coming from a more moderate swing district when you arrived in Sacramento? Well, just like in 2016, where I was counted out, I was also counted out in 2018. Uh, you know, I went uh, in and negotiated with Governor Brown uh on that one particular issue. And I was able to bring home significant amount of resources uh, that benefited my communities and where we wouldn't have seen these resources in more than 30 years if it wasn't for my negotiation skills uh, with the governor. The Inland Empire has historically been left out of the equation, um, has been left out of the conversations of the halls of power here in Sacramento. and. And that's why I first ran for office in 16, was to advocate for our fair share resources from Sacramento, uh, because we are the fastest growing region in the nation, and we deserve our seat at the table. I'm sorry to jump in. I just want to ask you about that meeting that you had with the governor, because I think you were called to the governor's mansion. It was to, you know, he needed your vote to increase the gas tax. And of course, you were going to have a target on your back probably anyway, because you had defeated a Republican and, you know, you were in your first reelection campaign coming up. How tell us about that meeting at the governor's mansion. Here you are, a freshman legislator with Jerry Brown, the old pro. How did it go? How did you how did you walk out of there with 400 million plus? With with 427 million. Yes. Uh, and direct resources uh, for for critical infrastructure projects. Uh, you know, I will say, yes, that was only in my first few months uh, in the state legislature as a new assembly member. Uh, but the good thing is I knew where uh, I knew that I was rooted in my community, which inspired me to to run for office in the first place. I knew what impacted the lives of everyday working people in my district. Uh, And I also had, uh, you know, my I brought my experiences with me growing up in the Inland Empire. Uh, And so being there with the governor negotiating what this meant, uh, I was able to bring all that and really show him that. If this is if this is where we're heading, this is what this is what we need to do, because at the end of the day, it's doing the best that you can advocating for your constituents, the ones that brought you to Sacramento, that entrusted you to make these decisions. Uh, And so I don't take this lightly. Uh, I I knew that this was going to be a challenge and that we were going to get attacked in the next election cycle. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's communicating why we decide to make the votes that we do. And instead of being defensive, we were able to go back to the district and show this is what we're getting. 
This is what we wouldn't have ever received if I was not in this position at this right time. And uh, the people spoke and reelected me in 2018. And now I'm on my fourth term uh, being the assembly member for the sixth year uh, in counting for this particular district. And, and I'm I proud of that. And I think winning in that district, it's made a lot of California political watchers say, Sabrina Cervantes, watch out for her. She could be someone rising up to higher office. I'm sure you don't pay attention to any of that. But, <laughs> you know, I do think if you look at who our constitutional officers are, who are the highest you know, elected officials in the state, there's very few people from swing districts. And I think that's probably because you have to take votes that you know are tough, where your constituents might not agree with the party line. I'm wondering if you think some of the votes you have taken or you worry some of the votes you have taken, you know, might come back to haunt you in that way. Instances where you've broken with the party. We have worked very hard to communicate uh, to our constituencies, uh, to our voters every election cycle on uh, the issues that they care about. And so I stand uh, behind every vote that I've taken. Uh, we are very thorough in our research uh, in every in every bill, especially at the end of House of Origin uh, and at the end of session. Uh, at the end of the day, I do not shy away uh, from these tough questions and these tough issues. Uh, I'm doing the best to deliver in every sense of the word, uh, to deliver for our constituencies and I will say with this last redistricting, uh, the district has gone much bluer. Right. Uh, and this is uh, just showing the, the rapidly changing uh, demographics. Uh, it's reflective of our evolving communities in the IE. And I think that it's important uh, that we have individuals, uh, you know, being the first Latina millennial, first openly LGBTQ woman, and first IE representative elected to chair the Latino caucus is, is important, is meaningful. Um, my colleagues entrusted me in this pivotal year of the 50th anniversary of the Latino Caucus to lead us into the future. Well, let me ask you about that. Uh, you, you know, As you said, you chair the caucus, the Latino Caucus. I think there's like 35 members now, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, this week, you released a list of priority bills. Uh, and, you know, in the past several sessions, uh, there's been a lot of expansion of health care to undocumented Californians, the expansion of testing and leave policy during COVID. So what, like, what's, what's really at the very top of the priority list, not just for this year, but for, you know, the next year or two? What we historically we have continued to fight for justice and representation in the last 50 years since its founding, since the Latino caucus is founding. Uh, we continue to fight for equity and health. Uh, healthcare access. We have important bills like AB4 uh, that we're going to continue to fight for as a priority uh, for our undocumented community to receive health care coverage under Covered California. Uh, we're going to uh, fight for our uh, educational equity uh, when it comes to looking at ethnic studies, uh, our framework across the state of California, uh, working with the Teacher Credentialing Commission, uh, as well as looking at how we put more dream centers in high schools across the state of California, uh, empowering our undocumented youth to pursue uh, opportunities in higher education. You know, all this work, uh, we are up in all this work, we are uplifting and empowering our nearly 16 million Latinos in the state of California. Uh, and in fact, uh, something I, I'd like to share is we have Cesar Chavez uh, holiday coming up. 
And it was it's only a state holiday because that is something the Latino caucus pushed for uh, years ago. And so we were proud of our 14 uh, pieces of legislation that are now our priority uh, for the Latino caucus and uh, proud to unveil and launch our Latino caucus 50th campaign. And there's a lot of diversity within the Latino caucus. You have Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, folks from Northern California, Southern California, but not a lot of partisan diversity. That's all Democrats. And some Republicans, Latino Republicans in the legislature say they're not invited and they're not allowed to, to join. What's up with that? So we have historically have our bylaws and we certainly are open to working with any member of the legislature uh, who wants to help us on issues important to the Latino community. And so our, our bylaws do state uh, being Latino and being Democrat uh, to be a part of uh, the eligibility requirements for our caucus that has been in place since the caucus is founding 50 years ago. And that is what we are going to continue to adhere to. Well, we know uh, that you are raising, you and your wife, uh, three potential voters. Um, what is that like, suddenly having triplets and being in the legislature? I think your wife is a hospital technician, so that that probably helps a bit. Yes, yes. We are uh, proud parents to three-year-old triplets, uh, which uh, they are our life's greatest teachers, let me tell you. Uh, they are wonderfully, uh, they have wonderfully blessed both of our lives. Uh, it's not easy uh, to the journey of parenthood for LGBTQ plus families. Uh, and so that is something, you know, my wife and I uh, recognize and we are, are honored to be able to share our stories and navigating parenthood um, in both of our roles. But she is now a stay-at-home mother, uh, given the childcare dynamics that we faced, uh, not just in the state of California, but nationally. And unfortunately, women bear the brunt of that. Um, and I'm able, thankfully, I owe it to my wife that I'm able to continue my work in public service and continuing in my passion to serve while she stays at home with them full time All until right. we get them to transitional kindergarten. All right. Assemblywoman Sabrina Cervantes from the Inland Empire, the IE, as Thanks she calls it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you all. That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Guy Marzarati. Our engineer today is Christopher Beal. I'm Scott Schaefer. For more politics coverage from KQED, subscribe to the Political Breakdown newsletter. You'll find it at kqed.org slash newsletters. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. 
you can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 